Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 28 for Friday, January 25th, 2019. This is where we discuss season two, episode two, New Eden of Star Trek Discovery. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer, Ken Gagney. And I'm Captain Sabriel Maston. Hello, Captain Sabriel. So, such a pleasure to not have to wait a month to talk to you. Right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm glad we can finally get weekly check again. Until like they're like, all of a sudden, we have a six-week mid-break season for no reason. I know, it's an embarrassment of riches to have this many episodes of such length in such rapid succession. Are Is there going to be a mid-season break like last year? If there is, I haven't paid attention, to be honest. Yeah, I just put a weekly reminder on my calendar for like 15 consecutive Thursdays that there's going to be new Star Trek through roughly April 18th. I haven't heard that there is... A mid-season break. I think that may have been last year because they started in September and then picked back up in January, whereas this year they're starting right in January. Yeah, where they had to placate us fans who were like for the nine-month delay. Right. I mean, I suppose that's true. They did start in September again, but this time it was the short treks. And I, I still feel like Star Trek is beholden a little bit to traditional TV broadcast schedules where new episodes run September to May. And so a mid-season break would mean new episodes in June and July. And that just seems unprecedented for Star Trek. Yes, I was doing an online-only distribution. That's right. I mean, since it's CBS All Access, they can do whatever the heck they want. That is true. Yeah. So, like, make me pay $10 a month for... <laughs> they got to earn our dollars. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about New Eden. This is the second episode of season two. Do you want to give us the too long, didn't read version? Yeah, you said, like, you should do it this week. And I'm like, okay, this is my version. And you're like, okay, do that. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here it goes. So we get a new red dot signal. We spore drive there. There's humans at this place that we know what humans should be. There's a church. There's uh, radioactive things. Tilly fixes it questions and then uh, there you go and there we are and now we have questions and we can posit the answers this is a fantastic tldr thank you captain sabriel no problem i hope everyone understood what happened so what is <laughs> some of your first questions or first impressions of this episode uh, so so i walked away with this feeling like oh, it's a fine episode i i would say on a scale of five stars five being highest i was a four i was like better than average but like, fine. And I went online and there's a lot of people who are like, this is the best thing that has ever happened to Star Trek. This is the universal best Discovery episode ever. And I'm like, did we watch the same thing? <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. I wasn't disappointed. I just didn't think it was that high regard of a episode. I don't have my finger on the pulse of the online Star Trek community. I too enjoyed this episode, but I thought it was not as good as the season premiere, and I'm not understanding why anybody would think it was the best Discovery episode ever. Uh, for a lot of people, it was, this is what Star Trek is. We go to a planet like, like the original series. Why are there humans here? Who cares? This is the reason there are human here. humans here. And and things like that. And like I had no disappointments about the episode. I just didn't feel like this is a heralding of a new era <laughs> just to me it felt like a story building like come on i want to know what the red thing is i want to see spock 
<laughs> One of the things I liked about the premiere, as we discussed, was that it had elements that you don't typically see in a Star Trek, especially as far as action goes. This week's episode was far less action-oriented and more deliberative, more thoughtful, and in that respect, more like TOS. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why I liked the episode, but not as much as last week, because I felt like we've seen this before. I mean, TOS found planets where ancient Rome never fell, or where everything was part of the mafia. And <laughs> DS9 found planets where, oh, it's us from the future, a small civilization. And Enterprise found a planet where everybody's a hologram, or everybody's a cowboy. And I feel like we keep finding these pockets of human civilization in places where they shouldn't be. I mean, even Voyager found Amelia Earhart. Yeah, my first thought with this episode was the 37s. Yep. That was the episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I had no idea at first how these humans got to this planet and why there was a church. I, the closest thing it seemed to me was, again, the TNG episode where the entire planet is wiped out by aliens, except for these two elderly survivors. You know, mm -hmm. and, and that's what I was thinking of. And fortunately, this planet was far less malicious, far less cult-like is something else I was afraid of. But it still felt like a variation on a trope we've seen many times in Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, well, I was surprised that there's 11,000 humans they mentioned on this planet. Yeah, I haven't done the math, but if you were to take a church full of people and fast forward 200 years, can they really multiply that quickly? Yeah, I guess we don't really know the area of how big the the human transfer was, but that's it's, I don't know the math either, but that seems like a lot of people. I mean, I suppose it's true because if you had a hundred people and you know they paired up, so fifty couples, assuming you know traditional monogamous relationships or whatever, they had let's say five kids each. Then that Jesus. is, I know, right? But then you go from 100 to 350, and then each of them pair up and have five kids every 25 years. I Again, I'm not doing the math in my head, and I'm not scratching it out on pad, but it seems like they probably could multiply quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I even then, I don't really care. It's just like, wow, there's a lot of people. But this episode did do something that we've barely seen in Star Trek up until this point. That's talking about Earth's religions. That's true. You know, I always thought when I was watching TNG that they always seemed to skirt the issue of religion. Of course, it became much more important in DS9, but we don't really talk about Earth's religions that much. Oh, yeah, because Gene Roddenberry either did or basically felt like, no, eh, humanity has grown past religion in the future, so that's why he doesn't talk about it uh, too much. But here, like, they're like, no, it's still a thing. We have even Luddite communes. <laughs> and we, where people don't like technology, we have atheists, we have people, uh, we have uh, scientists who give lectures on, on religious topics, as Pike's father was. Yeah, comparative religion. Yeah. Um, like, we, we actually learned quite a bit about Pike in this episode, I think. Or at least a little bit about his history that just was not known in the Star Trek universe, which I enjoyed. There is a lot to talk about Pike, and I have some specific questions for you about this manifestation of that character. I want to talk a little bit more about the people on the planet. It seemed odd to me that when the three people from Discovery showed up and they said, oh, we're from the North, and they welcomed them, and they went into a full explanation of how they came to be on that planet. Shouldn't everybody on that planet share that history and know that story already? 
To me, it seems like a retelling of religious doctrine. Like, I mean, because because that definitely is part of their their uh, culture, and so that's what it felt like to me. They were just like like you if you go to any Christian church, they talk about the same things over and over and over again about creation and about stories of Jesus and whatnot that everyone's heard. That's true, although it is atypical for the audience, the Congregationalists, to question it as much as Burnham was. Yeah, but hey. Uh. <laughs> it also seemed like the people in that community were very familiar with their history, like almost as if they were present for it. One person even said that he has a broken helmet camera, but nobody on that planet has ever seen a working camera, and it impresses me that he would have a working knowledge of what a camera even was 200 years later, because that story now had to have been passed down across multiple generations. And it seems to me like no details have been lost. Well, that, that character in particular, uh, he was a man who said his family was basically tending these artifacts, believing that someone would come get them eventually. And so that he would have any kind of knowledge of that is plausible to me. That's true. That makes sense. That's not something we really learned until the later in the episode, and I sort of forgot to reintegrate the remainder of the episode into that context. So that that is okay. That makes sense to me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like even the Baku in Insurrection, like like the Enterprise crew are all confused. Like, how do you know this terminology and warp drive and warp theory? And they're like, well, we have this technology. We just choose not to use it. Ah. Like it's not that these people on this show have the technology and choose not to use it, but it's plausible that they still have retention or books or uh, documents on the whole thing. There's something else that this episode has in common with Insurrection. Yeah, Jonathan Frakes uh, has directed it. For me, I I couldn't pinpoint a single thing on what, but it felt like Jonathan Frakes. It felt like Insurrection to me. Well, gee, I don't have the pleasure of knowing what Jonathan Frakes feels like. Smooth as an android's bottom. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. There you go. Have you seen any of his movies like Clockstoppers or Thunderbirds? Nope. No, I haven't seen that either. I want to see Thunderbirds because I watched a little bit of the show when it was on Fox when I was little. But no, I haven't seen it. I've just seen his work on Star Trek, basically, and other shows. Yeah, I saw the Librarian movies, all three of them. I saw Clockstoppers. They were pretty fun. Uh, The Librarian movies, I can definitely see Jonathan Frakes' touch. Of course, he did also direct First Contact, which, in my opinion, is probably the best Star Trek movie ever. I had forgotten that this is not his first Discovery credit. He also directed the first season episode, Despite Yourself, which was the first Mirror Universe episode in season one. Yeah, and now that I think about it... like. I don't remember feeling that Jonathan Frakes touched. Maybe I just had more parallels with insurrection because of humans or the Baku, like, or people on a planet who don't use technology. Maybe that's more of the connection. I really don't know. It just felt like Jonathan Frakes to me. No, that makes sense. And I hope to see him again because I really like the work he does. I just hope that he doesn't actually show up in this episode because either William or Thomas Riker has basically been in every Star Trek, and I think we're ready to let him stay behind the camera now. I, I, I don't know. He could just go on the holodeck like he did for Enterprise. When Enterprise aired the last episode of Next Generation. Yeah, seriously? If they had just <laughs> stopped with the previous episode, I, you know, some people on Reddit, I've heard them say, oh, if you're getting into Enterprise, you should know that if you're watching it like on Netflix season four, there's actually a bug in the Netflix listing. They say that there is another episode, but there isn't. So just ignore that. 
And to be honest, if you read the novelization of that episode, it creates more context, which made it easier for me to appreciate what they did. But it's still, I don't know, I feel like the episode before that just would have been fine by itself. Uh, I would love to go on more about this is Discovery. I would love to go more onto that subject. I would love to. (laughs) (laughs) True enough, true enough. So I also noticed, speaking of context, that when Pike said, well, this information gives us new context, and context, dramatic pause, is for kings. He didn't say that. (laughs) Uh, Were you expecting him to say that? No, I didn't. Did so? Oh, uh, I was really just like sitting on the edge of my seat. I'm like, say it, say it. Uh, but they didn't. <laughs> no, but when when uh, when they were on the planet, and they were, uh, the people asked, "Where are you from?" And he said, "The northern province." I was waiting for, or the north. I was waiting for him to say Kalto province for whatever reason, because that's what why that's what um, like Paris or Janeway said they were from when they had a similar situation where they went to a planet of people and said, where are you from? From the <laughs> from Kalto province. <laughs> and was that an actual province on the planet they were on? I assume so, because no, no one batted them an eye. But it just, when it was, when it, the question was asked here, I just like reminded of that scene and like, oh, I could. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be a little bit too self-referential. Yeah, I'm not saying it makes sense at all. It just, that's the first thing that jumped in my head. So you thought of this like episode of Voyager from almost 20 years ago, but you didn't think of an episode of Discovery from just one year ago? No. <laughs> I love how differently our brains work. <laughs> it's what makes for good podcasting. Thank you so much for being my captain. No problem. <laughs> so we did learn a lot about Christopher Pike. We got a lot more context about this character. What parts leapt out to you? Well, what I walked away from here is either... That Pike is comfortable around religion or possibly religious himself. Uh, his father's a scientist who lectured on religion. Um, I love the scene when he was told about the basics and how the spore dry to work. He said he'll just have to go on faith, but the mushroom highway is a thing. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I mean, it's just a cheeky little sentence. That's also just a normal sentence. But uh, he also, when they were looking at the planet, like, why is there a distress signal from here? Uh, Michael is like, it's coming from this structure. And he's like, that's a church, Michael. <laughs> it's a church, Burnham. <laughs> and he also just knew how to respond to various religious platitudes on the planet. And like, oh, it's kind of neat background on him. That was kind of cool. Yeah, just simple things like peace be with you and also with you. Mm-hmm. He was familiar with that. Force be with you and also with you. <laughs> <laughs> I always want to say that. <laughs> there was a TOS novel I read several years ago that was all about Pike and his childhood pretty much and his parents i don't think this episode of discovery is consistent with that which is fine because books aren't canon but as we know every now and then they like to work in some non-canon stuff and make it canon kind of like the animated series is non-canon but they've referenced aspects of it multiple times in other shows thereby making it canon and i thought there might be that opportunity here for example the cat people the caitlin's catlins and um the creature that Spock kept as a pet. He was a child. Right. Both references to the animated series. And the two colors of Andorians. Yes. Even if yep. it was an accident. <laughs> right. It was. But they didn't take that opportunity here to incorporate the book. And that's fine because there are probably multiple books about Pike and they probably contradict each other. 
This is, however, the third time we've seen Pike. He was, of course, played on the original pilot for TOS, and then Bruce Greenwood was in the two of the movies in the Kelvin universe. What do you think of Anson Mount's portrayal of Captain Pike? I think he's a lot of fun. He is charming as all heck. I love him. I think he's fun. I'm like, yes, this is what we needed after Lorca. This is this portrayal of a captain. I think he's fun. I agree. He's a great captain. He seems to be making all the right calls and the crew likes him. But is he consistent with other portrayals of Pike that we've seen? We don't have a whole lot to go on there. Um, trial from the, what was it, the menagerie. Um, the pilots we have basically have the pilot and i guess the movies to go on and i mean he is he's an all-knowing figure in the movies too he takes care of kirk here you mean he's taking care of his crew i mean he's always been that way i I think they're kind of relative it feels consistent i haven't watched the cage in a long time though because in the canceled episode the cage for tos he is captured by the telosians and then in the menagerie he later suffers an accident and is brought back to the Telosians. And there are many years where he is a captain in Starfleet in between those two episodes. My understanding is that Discovery is set after the cage. So his original encounter with the Telosians has now happened. And he is, of course, yet to have the accident that puts him in a wheelchair. You sure about that? I don't know. I just don't know. I'm not, I don't know. I, I, I read this somewhere and I forget where exactly but i think he has already had that experience maybe not well actually you know what because we haven't yet number one we haven't met number one yet and she's present when he has his first encounter with the telosian so maybe it hasn't happened yet i'm not sure but that would be jeffrey hunter who played the captain pike that met the telosians and then of course as i said bruce greenwood is the one who urges kirk to go into starfleet this seems like a, a mix of the two. Bruce Greenwood always struck me as a very serious character, and Jeffrey Hunter, of course, was very serious when he was captured, but a little more lighthearted. And I feel like what we're seeing with Mount sort of is in between those two. I think it is a good blend. Uh, whatever it is, it's fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Michael had some growth here. I don't know how much growth it was, but she had a scene where, but basically a bit where she was ordered not to interfere with these people and their, and their uh, development. And basically not to interfere. And this time she listened to her captain, unlike the one that started the war. (laughs) Yeah, and she very explicitly said that she's learned from personal experience the consequences of disobeying direct orders. Yeah, yeah. But beyond that, I don't know how much we we learned about her relationship with Spock not going well. More about that. We learned that Spock turned himself into a, um, was it a mental ward? What did they say? What was the term they used? Mental facility? It was an asylum, maybe like a psychiatric ward? Yeah, yeah, something like that. So that probably implies that Spock thinks he is a danger to himself or to others. But of course, being a Vulcan who values all life, he can't bring himself out of the equation through something like an honorable suicide. So he chose to seclude himself. I wonder how he sees himself as being a threat. Uh, well, well, okay, so the episode actually opens with him giving his personal log, saying when he was little... His mother taught him to draw out his nightmares that he was having to let him be in control of that. And he said the nightmares have returned. And this might be his last entry as a Starfleet officer or something like that. Something, something. Or a board enterprise. And then we cut away to this is Pike and Michael listening to this log. And they look at drawings that he's made. 
And so like, well, he's having these nightmares again. He's drawing them out. So he's having nightmares about this whole thing that's going on. So it just kind of tied in with the last episode too. The last few moments. But he's having the nightmares again and he's drawing to try to get rid of them, try to control them. Maybe he's struggling with these human emotions and how it relates to the red thing. Yeah, and we still don't know what the red thing is. All we know is that it pulses and it draws the starship to wherever the pulse is and then the pulse isn't there. When they get there, there's no damn red thing. Yeah. (laughs) But it does seem like the ship is being played. I feel like this is almost like a video game where they're being brought to one place and there's a challenge that they need to overcome. And when they overcome it, they acquire an item that they then need to use in the next scenario. And they're being tested to see, can they figure that out? Can they see how the pieces all fit? I don't think it's a coincidence that every time they enter one of these environments, a environment that was previously stable suddenly and inexplicably becomes destabilized. All of a sudden, these rings that have circled this planet for 200 years start falling to the planet for no reason and through no doing of discoveries. And they need to fix it. I really do feel like they are being strung along in a specific sequence like a video game. That definitely does seem plausible. Sorrow even kind of mentions that. He's like, I, I believe we were brought here to fix this thing. And yeah, I think that's very plausible. Someone's testing them. But to what end? I don't think the rings falling was a natural phenomenon that they were there to save. I think whatever brought them there made the rings fall. So why are they being tested? I I still feel this is not Q, but it does remind me about how humanity was put on trial by Q. There's too many unknowns. You're right. There are a few more puzzle pieces we need to put into play before we can appropriately hypothesize. What do you think about the fact that they brought back the spore drive? I actually thought it was a little bit of a surprise. I thought like we were kind of done with that. Other than, I mean, I didn't think we'd see it so soon. Yeah, I thought that was definitely a season one thing. Uh, yeah, because I mean, obviously Tilly's like, I want to do the thing to help Stamets do the thing. But I didn't think we'd see it like right away. Cause, and then Pike's like, well, Starfleet probably wouldn't mind because there's possible danger. So do the thing. <laughs> and we don't know what Stamets saw when he made the jump. He refused to talk to Tilly when he came out. Yeah, I, I suspect he was upset because he didn't see Hugh. Uh, the whole kind of premise here they brought up is he told Tilly in this episode that he saw Hugh and the Spore in the Mycelium network, but he didn't see it basically in their last jump. Didn't see him in the last jump. Here, he see, I mean, he was kind of struggling with that thought. Like, maybe, will I see him again? It's hard. It's just, it, it, to me, his face looked like disappointment and trying to cope with not seeing him again. But he also said that his place is on this side of the equation. And I feel like if he saw Hugh, he might be tempted to stay there with him. Oh, I think you're right. I think that is his struggle right now, also. And I feel like if he did see Hugh, he might be kind of pissed off that he can't join Hugh on the other side. So maybe that was his anger and frustration. It could go either way. Mm-hmm. Either way, I felt like he just walked away very disappointed from the experience. He's kind of like, yeah, I'll just do it now. <laughs> I mean, he didn't he didn't show any hesitation when they needed to use it in an emergency. So I don't think he hates using it, but it's a struggle mentally on what he may or may not see when he's there. Yeah, he never posited the idea that he wouldn't do it. He never objected to the command. And I thought that was surprising. It really didn't seem to me like something he would want to do. And maybe he didn't want to do it, but he did it anyway. And that was brave. Mm-hmm. We also saw Tilly not only interact with Stamets, but also with that massive asteroid that they caught last time. And there was an unexpected reaction to it. Yeah, it blew up in her face. Uh, <laughs> uh, almost quite literally. 
Do you have any theories as to why that happened? Okay, so, so part of this facet is Tilly is seeing an imaginary person. Well, it could be imaginary, some kind of figure. It seemed to me like she was just having um, the proverbial duck on the counter where you talk to uh, to talk out your problems as you work through things. Like programming, th- programmers will have their own little totem to talk to you. I thought maybe this, that's, this, is the mes- this was the manifestation of this, her friend that she knew. I thought that until it said back to her at one point, your mind is so much fun. To me, it was very kind of weird and creepy statement for your own imagination to say back to you. And so I, I suspect this has to do with something with that asteroid. Tilly's been working with it closely. And I think there's something sentient-ish or sapient about this rock or part of this rock is part of some kind of bigger thing that uh, is affecting Tilly personally. Whew, got that out. <laughs> Why do you think it singled her out? Uh, the only reason I can come up with is that she's working with it closely. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the results are of the segment that she carved off. I mean, they still do have that, and hopefully that they'll get back to it and do some experiments to see what it's made of and etc. I'm also wondering, she mentioned in the previous episode that the mushrooms that they had on board, the spores, reacted strongly when they got near those asteroids. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe that was a line. Something like, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the end of the last season, we saw some of that spore drift onto her shoulder. Remember that? Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. And so I'm wondering if the asteroid is reacting to the spores in her. Very possible. And, oh, 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 uh, Stamets made a comment about how the spores are kind of like, like or mushrooms and fungus have to do with death a bit here and there, too. And we found out that this person that Tilly has been seeing is someone she went to school with until he found out that person died. Right. So maybe there's some kind of relation. Yeah, kind of like how the mushrooms allow Stamus to see Hugh. Maybe it's allowing Tilly to see her old friend as well. Yes. Oh. Because they are the universe's great recycler. Yes, that's the wording. Oh, interesting. And now they both had contact with the mycelial network in some way or the mushrooms that, or the part things that make it work. And so it's pos- that, that could be another reason why Tilly is affected by this. At what point did you start suspecting that the person she was seeing wasn't actually there? For me, it was almost right away, to be honest. This person just came out of nowhere. The way they presented, usually in Star Trek or in, even TV shows, if someone is a normal part of the background, they are just in the background and walk to you or they walk through the doors or something. And here, this character that we didn't know just appeared in front of her. Like, she opened her eyes, and there's a person. And now, I can't really put a finger on it, but it's just, it's not a natural way to show things on TV unless it's intended to be a way to show you something's not right. It kind of clicked off to me, and it's like, oh, something's not right about this character. I couldn't figure out what until I was like, okay, she's talking to this person, no one else is interacting with this character. I mean, I I didn't watch for that kind of stuff. Maybe after Sixth Sense. (laughs) I didn't pay very close attention when she first woke up in sickbay to see how this dead character interacted or didn't interact with other people. But what I did notice was the three times we saw this character, she never moved, which is an extension Mm -hmm. of what you're saying. We didn't see her arrive. We didn't see her leave. But even once she was in the scene, she was rooted, cemented to a specific spot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that struck me as very unnatural. Yeah, absolutely. And then the very last scene she's in, I mean, clearly at that point, we know the character's dead. And all of a sudden, Tilly sees her as she's leaving the bridge. Just all of a sudden, this character says something to her as she's as Tilly's getting under the turbo lift. 
And as the doors are shutting, and Tilly's like, what? (laughs) Yeah, that character should not have been on the bridge. Mm -mm. I mean, we don't know that, but it just seemed an odd place to find her. Yeah, that was like the last signal, like, this is not right. Yeah, and so this is something new that's been introduced. Oh, speaking of which, we didn't see our comedian friend from last week who they rescued from the Hiawatha. No, uh, what was her name, Vegas? No. uh, Jet, I think. Jet, Jet, yeah. Uh, No, it didn't, but I'm sure we'll see her in the future. But it does seem like they are picking up something new at each place that they go. So last time they got the asteroid and they got Jet. This time they got the camera and this dead person. And so if my video game theory is correct, I'm wondering what they've acquired or learned or attained from this second Pulsar that they're going to need to solve the third one. Okay, there's two connections here as well. Both of these interactions took place around a war event. And the Hiawatha crash. Oh, that's true. The Klingon War and the World War Three. Yeah, the Hiawatha one's a bit more of a stretch because it was just during the same time. But Hiawatha crashed during the war. I think they were, I think she mentioned they were behind enemy lines during wartime. So I think I could be mistaken on that. And then here, um, this was, this is our first footage we've ever seen of World War Three in Star Trek Universe 2 as well. It's a, it's a possible relation, but I think that one might be on the lower side. We'll see. (laughs) But it does imply that this red angel that they're seeing, and which Burnham eventually trusted her new captain enough to to confide in, unlike the last captain who she learned she should not have trusted, we now know that this is basically some sort of a red-winged angel. And you're right, that shows up around war events. So it's like an an angel of war, almost. It's Ares or Mars. Right? (laughs) I knew it. So we need to get Kratos in here and get him to solve it. (laughs) So based on what we know now, <laughs> I, I've only played the first one. Anyway, um, so so there's some more uh, possible things to speculate. Possibly war is related. That's why this thing is coming up. I don't know if there was any wars going on when... I mean, it wasn't a talk... I don't have to go back and watch the first few seconds, but wasn't this thing talked about during... It was seen in the past? Or maybe we'll just get more information. I don't know. Klingons come, ag- come up again. We know that. When in the past do you think this angel was discussed before? Oh, I thought they I thought they gave a time figure at the beginning, like Michael giving uh, some kind of thing, but I don't recall the specifics off the top of my head. I'd have to go rewatch. You mean in this episode? No, last episode. Oh, okay. In like the little epilogue? Oh, what's the beginning? Prologue? Prologue. I thought. I would have to go back and watch it as well. I'm not sure. We got to see other characters doing things. Anyway, we got to see Joanne O'Second, I think her name is. Get away from the station for once, like her 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 science station, her con the con, and actually do an away mission. She actually got to go on a planet. We found out her family uh, had no religious beliefs and they were luddites, <laughs> which is surprising that she would grow up to be in Starfleet. Or maybe it's surprising to me who doesn't know much about luddites. Uh, basically, the issue technology, and so maybe she rebelled and said, "No, I'm going to uh, join Starfleet." Yeah, sort of like Saru. He really rebelled. <laughs> Yeah. The fact that she was raised as a Luddite was interesting, and they said that that would make it easier for her to blend in. But I, other than escaping from the basement, I didn't see that she brought any particularly unique talent to that away mission. And maybe I'm thinking of this in the framework of Maniac Mansion for the old <laughs> Apple and, and Nintendo, where each character has a specific quality that opens up new possibilities when you choose to have them in your party. And choosing this character to have in your away mission, I don't see what possibilities it really opened up. Uh, I can figure out it's plausible that she briefed Michael and Christopher pre-mission and helped them select clothing. 
but yeah, like, while they were there, she didn't do a whole lot of the interacting. They left that for the main char- main characters of the show. That doesn't make me any less glad that no. she joined the away party because I want to see more of the casting. Yeah, crew. I want to see her in action. Like if it was Enterprise, we would see, or not Enterprise. Uh, if it was like a Next Gen, or even like TOS, they would have random guest actor for the week is our specialist in X thing. And they would bring them down and give them a few lines. And this character has actually had more things to do in the mirror universe than in the prime universe up until yeah. now. So it's nice to finally see that balance being corrected. Yeah. We also got to see Detmer uh, talking more. <laughs> I loved it. I loved her bit. Detmer is great. Everything about Detmer is great. Detmer is the one, the woman who runs uh, navigation and the pilot. And I just love when Tilly is like, you'll have to do some kind of, or they're like, you have to do this. And they're like, wait a minute. You'd be doing a donut in a spaceship. <laughs> they're both, and her <laughs> eyes lit up. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. And Pike was like, can you do it? And Detmer's like, yes. No. <laughs> well, she's like, <laughs> And that was another opportunity for Samus to volunteer to jump. He's like, we can do it if we jump. Yeah. That was, yeah. That, that's when he runs to the, runs to the thing. And, and Saru tells her, like, asks her, are you ready? And she's like, and she just back and just look at him with a smile. She's like, I've had my pilot's license since 12, sir. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So they, they still have pilot's licenses in the future. That's good to yeah. know. Oh, I loved that scene so much <laughs> for the car reference, drifting reference, and then Detmer is like one of my favorite characters. It would have been funnier if they said, like, you're going to have to Tokyo drift <laughs> through space. <laughs> or some kind of awesome. vague alien reference. <laughs> like they always do. Like you'd have to, you'd have to drift across that, like the roads of uh, Kronos yeah. <laughs> or something like that, that they always squeeze in. You'd have to do the Kessel Run in twelve parsecs. <laughs> yeah, this was a fun episode. Not as action packed as the previous one, but still fun. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing I didn't like about it. Just didn't think it was like yeah. be all to end all, <laughs> like some people online thought. Absolutely. I am concerned, though, that they historically have had some issues with the spore drive, and I was concerned that it might not be so smart for them to jump 50,000 light years away without knowing if they can get back. Yeah, they didn't seem to question that fact at all. I did like the point, though, that they said 50,000 light years would be 150 years of traveling at warp speed, which suggests a difference in maximum warp speed between that era and Voyager, because for Voyager, it would have taken... 50 years, a third of the time. And it makes sense that starships would be faster, you know, 150 years later or so. This is the first time I've actually seen it evidenced. But it reminds me, didn't TOS have a different warp factor scale? Like, weren't they going warp 12, etc.? Yeah, they had a different scale entirely. Uh, that was actually some um, big hubbub, like, between for next-gen and TOS. People were like, what's going on? These numbers don't match up, and something like that. And like, yeah, so this is, like, the first, I think, on-screen confirmation like like a real really not even technically confirmation but not direct confirmation indirect confirmation that they changed the scale but in enterprise they had the first warp five starship what scale is that i don't think it ever came up what was it what was it like like uh earth earth just neptune in eight minutes or something like that <laughs> like I, i'm not sure because that show, of course, is set before TOS, but Warp 5 seems consistent with the TNG scale. And I don't know that we've heard Discovery use specific warp numbers. Like to d- this episode, they went maximum warp for five seconds. Yeah, up until now, up until like the end of season, they really didn't talk about warp at all because they had the spore drive. That's right. 
I did find it curious that they only had to go five seconds closer to that pulsar to get an accurate reading when it was 50,000 light years away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they were just going for the... No, because that's a, that's a very... Even five seconds at warp is a very long distance. They were just using the redshift. This is actually what I understood physics-wise. physics, physics wise. Like They were just using the... Basically triangulating. They just got to a different spot real quick. Check the triangulation. That was my next guess, that they were comparing their original readings to the ones from a different position. Yep, yep. Okay, that makes sense. Because if it was just a matter of proximity, even five seconds, even if that's a long time, compared to 150 years is not a long time. Right, right. Well, I have exhausted everything I want to say about this episode. Have we overlooked anything that interested you? Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, sorry. <laughs> Tilly! <laughs> we, we talked about Tilly, what about... Oh, 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 that's right, you tweeted something. Yes, I, um, there was a point towards the beginning of the episode where they're like, Captain to the bridge. And they get there. Tilly's like, oh, Michael, I'm sorry. I was using your station to do the doobly-doo-doo. And Sarah was like, yeah, Tilly was helping us calculate some doobly-blah. And Tilly's like, oh, hold on. I'll close this for you. I'll, I'll clean this up for you. And they cut away to her screen. And she lied saying what she was, about what she was working on. And she's closing all these pop-ups and windows on her screen. And they zoom in and we see it's like Tilly's uh, at the same time, she's practicing for her uh, command training program. She's got a command training program checklist. She's got like 19 or so unread messages. Uh, she's got a message from Michael saying, good job on one of the things that's on your checklist here, like some sprint challenge. And then we see like a little to-do list where she's like, uh, oh, what was it? Um, study for test, make appointments, get deodorant. <laughs> and then there's this massive to-do list underneath it. Where, oh, or some of the references I found, like, um, visit patients in sickbay. Like, oh, believe in yourself or believe in myself more. Get area rug for our room. <laughs> like, to thine, <laughs> I love that one. Or like, to thine own self be true. Or I am allowed to be happy. And there's a list of like 50 things here on this larger list. I just thought it was amazing. And that is an extensive list. Some of them are one-off. Some of them are life-altering. I... I can't imagine how long she's been working on that list. And if she adds to it as quickly as she checks the items off. I saw someone comment, and I cannot val- uh, validate if this is a real thing or not, that sometimes I'm making a to-do list like this is um, suggested for people who have anxiety. And it seems plausible, but I don't know if that is true. And it definitely does fit Tilly's character. Uh, basically, write, th- write things down as you think of them so you can take care of them at some point. That makes perfect sense. I generally don't think of myself as having anxiety, but when I get something in my head, I either need to do it right away or get it out of my head and onto a piece of paper so that I know it's somewhere else that I don't need to think about. Yeah. And so that's that seems plausible to me, but I just honestly don't know if that is a valid thing from this commenter I saw online or not. No, that's very interesting. I do like that. And as you said, it's very consistent with the character of Tilly that we've seen over the last year and a half. I appreciate that she's in the command training program and she has a lot of anxiety about that. And I am sure that some of her experiences pretending to be a captain in the mirror universe reinforced her confidence to pursue that program. I would like to see more of that confidence. We haven't seen a lot of Captain Killy this season yet. (laughs) I think this season we're going to see a lot of growth in Tilly's character. She's already more confident than she was at the beginning of season one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we are seeing that happen in real time. So I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to get there. One thing I forgot to mention last week, there are actually two small things. One is the opening credits, which I think you may have skipped over yourself. 
Yeah, this week after we talked about that, I actually watched it. And like, okay, yeah, there's some changes. There's like the show captain's chair being drawn instead of a batleth and things like that. Like, yeah, that's cool. All right. I think there's an IDIC. And we see the red-winged angel. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so I like that they're mixing up the diagrams and graphics a little bit. I'm glad that they haven't changed the overall design or length of the opening credits. It implies that every season is going to have its own opening credit sequence, which is kind of neat. I like it. And one very small thing from last week, when Burnham wakes up in the sick bay after being rescued by Captain Pike, and she's talking to Tilly about the asteroid that she tried to transport, it's one of the few times I've actually seen Burnham that animated and excited about something like the the silly grins that the two of them were sharing over what they may have just discovered maybe because season one was wartime and she was still considered a traitor a mutineer maybe now that she's in her starfleet uniform and is an accepted member of the crew or maybe it's just the circumstances of waking up from having been impaled in the leg i don't know and she was on some happy juice to dull the pain it was just really nice to see such unabashed sincerity and enthusiasm. I agree. Yeah, that was nice to see. That was cool. There was one moment at the beginning, very beginning of the episode I thought of that made me think of Star Trek 2009 and Voyager. Opening scene of this episode has Discovery flying through a basically a, a lightning storm in space and also reminded me of the Voyager opening credits where Voyager's like going through this red material or like space material and wisping stuff away unnaturally in space the lightning storm in space kind of caught me that's plus it was a red cloud made me th- made me kind of wonder like is this an intentional nod to these other things just coincidence or what at the very least it's a nice reminder that although space is mostly empty it's also filled with far more fascinating things than we can imagine absolutely which is why i have a problem with avengers 3 <laughs> well maybe they'll fix it in avengers 4 i hope so <laughs> We'll find out soon enough. In the meantime, we have many, many more episodes of Discovery still to watch. So I hope that you stay tuned to TransporterLock.com for even more episodes. Any closing remarks, Captain Sabriel? No, I just love talking about Star Trek and Discovery. So uh. Me too. And I'm so glad to have somebody to talk with. And I hope our listeners will talk with us too. So until next time, uh, hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. What else? Anything else that you saw this episode? Notes, 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 notes. Donut in a starship. Pike. No, it's a good.